From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. The devastating attack on Israel by the terrorist group Hamas on October 7th claimed the lives of over 1,200 people. Somewhat less known is the fact that Hamas also took hostage at least 240 people, hiding them in the underground tunnels that Hamas uses to move securely through Gaza. As many families mourn the deaths of their loved ones, others are left in suspense, not knowing whether their captured relatives are dead or alive. The Daily Signal's Virginia Allen was able to sit down with two brothers, Jonathan and Ido Lulu Shemriz. On October 7th, Jonathan was celebrating his two-year-old daughter's birthday, along with his seven-months pregnant wife. When the violence broke out, Jonathan barricaded himself and his family in his safe room and spent 22 hours in terror, waiting for a sign that all was clear. Ido had a different story. He was part of the civilian emergency squad of his kibbutz and was called in to fight the terrorists. In the defensive effort, seven of his friends were killed. But Ido and Jonathan have a third brother, Alan, who was taken hostage by the terrorists. In relation to his brother, Jonathan had this to say. You feel blame all the time. Because... You feel blame all the time. Because you wear these clothes, you eat food, you go to bed, you brush your teeth in the morning, and you always ask yourself if Alan gets the same conditions. In recent days, there has been some movement on this front. Hamas has released 50 of the hostages in exchange for 150 prisoners held by Israel. It does not appear that Alan was among them. To help us understand some of what is going on with this situation, how it relates to other trends going on around the globe and here at home, we spoke with Victoria Coates, Vice President of the Davis Institute for National Security here at the Heritage Foundation. Victoria Coates, welcome back to Heritage Explains. Thank you very much. So, of course, the world has been watching the unfolding events in the Israeli-Gaza conflict. And there have been a number of notable developments over the last couple of weeks. We wanted to bring you in and give our Heritage Explains listeners kind of the inside scoop on what is going on over there. So one of the biggest developments that people may be seeing in the news at the moment is the exchange of hostages. So Hamas has been holding hostages for quite some time. That exchange has been made, and some are lauding it unequivocally. Some have concerns. Can you tell us maybe what went on and what we should think about it? Right. I mean, this this really has been an extraordinary headline-grabbing development. As most people know, more than 200 people were very deliberately and systematically taken hostage in the October 7th terrorist attacks, Hamas-led terrorist attacks against southern Israel. And these you know, poor innocent people, including some number, up to 10 Americans, 
were all just dragged off into the tunnels of Gaza uh, and where they've been held now for more than six weeks. And in recent days, an arrangement was brokered by Egypt and Qatar to start exchanging these hostages for prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, that are rightly held in Israeli prisons for various terrorist uh, activities. And so, as always in these exchanges, it's disproportionately weighted toward the Palestinians. Uh, so one Israeli hostage might be worth three or four uh, Palestinian prisoners. And you know, for Israel, it's really an imperative to start getting these people out, uh, A, to establish that there are some number of them that are still alive. That does appear to be the case to start with the women and children. Uh, but the, the goal is to get them all out so the ongoing military operation against Hamas can be done with greater flexibility, that you're not worried that you're going to bomb a tunnel with, you know, 50 hostages in it. And so, you know, they're facing this really, as I said, agonizing process of, you know, trying to get these people out, get them out safely, and, you know, then get back to the business of destroying Hamas, which is what attacked Israel and the United States by extension on October 7th. Do we have some idea of how many hostages we're talking about here? With, I think we've gotten uh, about 40 out at this point. So there still could be as many as 200. And do we, of them, do we know how many are Americans? Well, we have one little girl, uh, Avigail, who got out yesterday, a four-year-old little girl. Both her parents were murdered, dual Israeli-American citizens. There could be, a, I think, another nine or ten Americans. And you mentioned that the exchange is weighted in the Palestinian direction. Why is that the case? Why does Hamas have more leverage than Israel in this case? Well, they, they shouldn't. Uh, basically, this is happening because Hamas was really feeling the brunt of the is successful Israeli unprecedented military incursion into, into Gaza. And, you know, Israel was not sparing for the first time Al-Shifa Hospital, which has served as Hamas's headquarters in Gaza City for decades. But because it's a hospital, Israel had always avoided any kind of direct attack on it or infiltration of it. And so that that has ended. They're going in. They're exposing the fact that Hamas has multi-tiered uh, tunnels underneath the hospital where they're storing arms, and it, they, that that all is putting a huge amount of pressure on Hamas. Meanwhile, we have an American administration which is saying some very good things on Israel and, and a Department of Defense that is stepping up with security cooperation with Israel. That's something that's been baked into our relationship and our alliance with Israel over the uh, past decades to have that very close military-to-military and intelligence-to-intelligence relationship. That, that is continuing, but unfortunately, we're seeing some rhetoric creep in to the president's remarks and then those of his administration about the necessity of getting humanitarian aid into Gaza, the necessity for these pauses, which is what they, they're very careful not to call them ceasefires, but it's what Hamas needs desperately right now. So in my opinion, it would have been better to build the leverage to continue to support Israel's military advancement until Hamas agreed to release all the hostages uh, rather than this kind of incremental approach. But it does appear from President Biden's recent remarks that he was very much in the camp of pressuring Israel on this. And you know, unfortunately, in the case of Israel, 
uh, you know, other countries may say some nice things, but when the rubber hits the road, it's Israel and the United States or Israel alone. So they're not going to be in a position to uh, to affront their their biggest ally. You mentioned that part of President Biden's statement included insistence on these pauses, uh, ceasefires, allowing humanitarian aid, all of those things, which sounds great. But you mentioned to me before the interview that those things often translate to a strategic disadvantage to Israel. Can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because Hamas is Gaza. They control everything in Gaza. And they have the support of the majority of the Gazan people who elected them when given the opportunity uh, some 15 years ago. And so, so you know, this attempt to disaggregate Hamas from the Palestinian civilians is, is just, I mean, it's a fantasy. It would be nice if it were the case. It would be nice if the Palestinians saw Hamas as a, you know, cancerous evil that they wanted to throw off so that they could get to a happier political solution with Israel and they could have the prosperous, secure lives that normal people would hope for. But what we saw on October 7th is that is simply not the case. You know, you do not create a generation of 3,000 jihadists, which is how many of them were un unleashed on Israel on that day, and make them all that vicious simultaneously. That doesn't happen by accident. And that's not just Hamas. That is every school. That is every mosque that is indoctrinating this, this next generation coming up. And so the hopes of the Biden administration that we're storing uh, the historic levels of U.S. taxpayer funding for Palestinian causes, you know, which they started up again in uh, the spring of 2021, very shortly after they came into office, and now more than a billion dollars uh, has been poured into this. You know, their assumption was this would make the Palestinians more amenable to peace and that they would start to build things with those, those, that, uh, those resources that would make them less violent and less aggressive toward Israel. The opposite, unfortunately, has turned out to be the case. And you know, recognizing that reality I know would be extremely painful, but the burden has to be on the Palestinians to renounce Hamas. And that's where I really took issue with the president's remarks on Nantucket when he was insisting on a two-state solution and you know, all these rewards for the Palestinians. I'm like, no, that, that doesn't work. We have to reverse that paradigm. What you need to do as the president of the United States is stand unequivocally with Israel on this one and with the Americans that were attacked and the Americans who have been held hostage and, and place some burdens, some responsibilities on the Palestinians for the first time in generations. And maybe that actually would work. You also mentioned that something that seems to be ramping up is Iran-backed attacks elsewhere in the world. As we've talked about previously on the podcast, Iran is a tremendous backer of Hamas, and they're very much a player in all of this. Could you break that down for our listeners? Sure. No, I mean, Hamas does not exist without Iran. Uh, they have poured hundreds of millions is probably a considerable underestimation of it, but just endless flows of money and material and intelligence support and organizational support and you know, this this is what has allowed Hamas to carry out an attack like October 7th. They, they, they ha do not have that capability on their own, but they are not the only 
proxy that Iran has has armed and equipped and deployed throughout the region. We have Hezbollah in Lebanon. We have the Shiite militias in Iraq. There's an unholy combination of those two things milling around in Syria. And then we have the Houthi in Yemen, which, if you look at a map, is pretty far uh, removed from Israel. You know, Syria has a border with Israel. Uh, Lebanon has a border with Israel. Gaza, obviously, has a border uh, and is part of Israel's territory. But Yemen is far removed. So why is Yemen inserting itself into the Hamas-Israel war that's going on currently? The only reason is Iran. Iran wants to make this as difficult as possible on the Americans and the Israelis. The Houthi are not Palestinians. Uh, and as I said, they have no relationship with this, yet they are actively participating in it. They are firing ballistic missiles at Israel that have to be intercepted by the American warships that are there. And then overnight last night, we had the pretty extraordinary episode where an Israeli tanker was boarded by five Houthi pirates who tried to, to take the ship over. And thank heavens, the USS Mason was there in the Gulf of Aden off of, of Yemen uh, and was able to intervene, capture the, the pirates, liberate the vessel, but then the Houthis shot ballistic missiles at the USS Mason. So, you know, this, again, is not a capability the Houthi have on their own. They don't grow ballistic missiles on trees in Yemen. They have to get them from the Iranians who have to teach them how to fire them. So that is an escalation. It's the third time it's happened in, in recent weeks, but that is an escalation from previous capabilities. And Iran is doing this, and so they are trying to create this this regional sort of simmering conflict. And I believe the United States has had uh, more than 70 attacks on us since uh, October 7th. So this is not abating or trickling out at all. It's, it is ramping up right now. And we've had concerns in the past with the way that the current administration has dealt with Iran. Um, we still have those concerns? We have deep concerns. They they can barely bring themselves to use the word. Uh, and the only time the president has really raised it was when he had his uh, summit in San Francisco with Chairman Xi and said, oh, I'm going to get China to help us, you know, maybe tamp down the Iranian behavior, which is, you know, it would be laughable if it weren't so dangerous. It, Chairman Xi is the one who's bankrolling all of this, you know. Iran was down to very, very slim uh, resources during the Trump administration because we actually enforced the sanctions that the Congress passed on their energy exports. And the Biden people, around the same time they turned the taps back on to the Palestinians, uh, stopped enforcing those sanctions. And so Iran went from roughly 400,000 barrels a day at the end of the Trump administration, and they're now well up over 2 million barrels a day. So that's how much their income has increased. And their biggest uh, customer for all of that is China because, you know, China, if you're going to enforce the, the, the sanctions, China is still going to cheat with the Iranians, but just a little bit. They don't, they don't, they'll skirt it. Not, they don't really want those sanctions to be reinforced. Uh, but if they're not going to be uh, enforced at all, then sure, they're just going to turn on that spigot. That for them is a dedicated stream of energy straight to China at a discounted price. It's a little bit what they've done with Russia and uh, the same same kind of structure. So China gets their regular uh, imports from an almost a captured uh, source. And you know, for Iran to be exposed as a malignant actor makes them all the more dependent on China because you know normal people 
India, South Korea would, would look at this and say, gee, I don't think I want to import oil from you. You're an international pariah. China doesn't have those those qualms. And so for them, this is a win-win. They, they make Iran all the more dependent on them as a customer, which means they keep their supplies captured, and it drives the United States insane. And so, you know, the, the idea that that the president's grand strategy for Iran is to enlist China, which has a vested interest in continuing this this kind of uh, conflict, you know, is just is just diluted. And at the same time, you know, they will not, the Biden administration will not rule out, you know, additional negotiations with Tehran on a new nuclear deal, which is just, it, it's just extraordinary that they would think that these people have any credibility, any good faith to offer on, you know, a critical national security issue. This is wandering a little bit down a, a different path. But as you saw this meeting unfold a few weeks ago between um, President Xi from China and President Biden, what were your takeaways from that? You know, it's it's again a policy that goes back to the beginning of the Biden administration. You know, their first encounter with with China and Alaska with Secretary Blinken with the Chinese lecturing us about our human rights record. Uh, you know, in the embarrassment of that, we've had the the just parade of senior administration officials, including Secretary Blinken, but not limited to, including the Treasury Secretary, the Secretary of Commerce, all paying their state visits to to Beijing. Uh, and you know, this was our return gift was to have Chairman Xi you know visit California for the APEC summit. I mean, I guess a good thing for our our fellow citizens in, in San Francisco is that Gavin Newsom finally cleaned the city up, at least for a period of time, so maybe their lives are a little bit more pleasant. But the trade-off there was, you know, the streets of San Francisco lined with communist flags flying, uh, you know, barely six months after a Chinese spy balloon flew with impunity over our country. I mean, it feels like, you know, they are here. Uh, they're here in the United States. And that that summit you know, which could have been an opportunity for an American president to show great strength. Uh, I remember when President Trump hosted Chairman Xi at Mar-a-Lago, very much on his own turf, without, you know, crowds of, of Chinese nationals waving their flags. And, oh, casually told him over dinner that I'm bombing Syria right now. Uh, you know, that that's how you handle this, because the message is implicit. I will bomb you if you if you cross my lines. And so keep your hands off Taiwan. That should have been the message of this summit, and it wasn't. Instead, there was talk of climate change. There were pleas for help on Ukraine and Hamas, neither of which is going to be fulfilled. Oh, and then another promise to cut back on the fentanyl, which they also will not fulfill. So as I'm hearing you say all this, talking about the bad guys of the world, it, it does feel like we kind of cover the same general idea most of the time, which is that strong American leaders in the past have shown strength towards the bad guys mm -hmm. of the world, and they seem to respond to that. But then when we show kind of uh, more deference, that tends to just get abused. Why do you think that that policy of showing deference and appeasement continues? Well, it, you know, it doesn't seem to be able to do anything but fail up at this point. You know, if you look at the successive Democrat administrations of, you know, Jimmy Carter, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and now Joe Biden, you know, there in each case was a very deliberate attempt to curtail American strength and leadership 
And, you know, to, to give them their due, I think the theory was that if you pull America back, the whole globe will rise. And, you know, I think Michelle Obama put it pretty clearly in 2018 when she said some people are going to have to give up their piece of the pie so others can have more. And I think that is the guiding philosophy here, that America has probably too much. We've been too fortunate. We've been too successful. We're too powerful. And if we voluntarily rein that in, it will encourage good behavior on the part of others. Now, unfortunately, time and time again, going back to 1979, which has very frightening parallels for our own time, when we had both the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, among other woes, you know, this has not worked. It has simply encouraged uh, aggression by bad actors. And so, you know, for someone like President Trump, who's supposed to be very much a, a you know an unpredictable cowboy with no di- diplomatic finesse, to have an administration of four years with no new major conflicts coming up for uh, under his under his watch. Now, under two and a half years of of President Biden, who was supposed to be the adult in the room, and the you know the the professionals were back in charge. You know we already have three massive uh, catastrophes: Afghanistan in 21, Ukraine in 22, and now Israel in 23. And you have to wonder what's next. So we have seen not only this disappointing support for Hamas globally, mm-hmm. we also continue to see it at home. Um, when the conflict was young, we saw a lot of demonstrations, particularly from students on university campuses, um, sometimes in large cities all over the world. We saw explicit, at times, support for Hamas. That situation has continued to unfold. What is the most recent development there? Yeah, and this is what I think is critical for Americans who might say, you know, yes, Americans were part of the October 7th attacks. Yes, there are some American hostages, but this seems really far away from me and my life and the fact that I now have to pay $16 for a Big Mac. You know, it's very understandable that that could seem distant. But the reason I think it does demand the attention, you know, of heritage members, of the American people writ large is this is happening here at home. This is what October 7th has exposed here in America that we have a very serious anti-Semitism problem which is basically an anti-civilizational problem. This, you know, this obviously is what, what sparked World War II. It, it is just a, a bigoted, horrible evil. Uh, and it, it, it obviously is basically as old as time, uh, but we don't have to accept it as inevitable here in the United States. And where it's really being exposed is on, it not limited to, but primarily focused on educational institutions. And so, you know, at my alma mater of the University of Pennsylvania, we've had, you know, very uh, overt demonstrations of, of anti-Semitism on a campus that historically has had the, the strongest Jewish uh, population of all the Ivies. And so that's happening at Penn. We're also seeing it in high schools, in some ways more violent, more unhinged behavior on the parts of, of students for whom it's become kind of radical chic to support Hamas, including a teacher in New York, a Jewish teacher who had to barricade herself in her office for hours because there was a mob of students trying to attack her for going to a pro-Israel rally. And we saw that the students at Cooper Hewitt locked themselves in a basement because there was a mob going after them. You know, and one worries that with the glorification we're seeing on the left of, of the events of October 7th, the normalization 
of those horrific terrorist acts, the violence, just the inhumanity of it, that as these kids, you know, are, are seeing that basically being presented as an acceptable form of behavior against what they consider to be the colonizer or the oppressor, you know, at what point does one of these situations get out of hand? And so one of the things we're doing at Heritage, and it's sort of an all of Heritage effort, is to get after how critical race theory in particular has been used to push this narrative, to educate our children, to, you know, basically try to control their their minds to make them, uh, you know, sort of embrace this kind of corrosive anti-Semitism. So I think it's, it's you know, it, it Yes, this is a foreign policy issue in terms of, of the Gaza-Israel piece of it, but it is also a domestic American issue now and, you know, something that I think is going to be, you know, a critical issue going into 2024. Are you optimistic at all as you look out in the world? <laughs> it might surprise our listeners to hear that, yes, indeed I am. You know, I think that exposing this kind of thing and getting after it is what we do here at Heritage. Uh, that we are seeing some pretty interesting successes on the uh, DEI, the diversity, equity, inclusion uh, initiatives that came out of the Black Lives Matter riots of, of 2020. We've seen Iowa, for example, ban DEI from all of its uh, state universities. We see reports in Axios uh, that DEI is being now recognized in corporate America as not, you know, a great good that they embraced it as three years ago, but a, a, a horrible, corrosive, and possibly illegal activity after the uh, the Supreme Court decisions of this year, then that they're going to need to unwind this and get out of it, or they're going to face significant penalties. So I think we have huge opportunities, and it's just a case of, of not just sort of lying around and waiting for those opportunities to develop on their own, but we as Heritage need to fight for them and, and get them implemented, and that's what we do every day. Victoria Coates, thank you so much, as always. Thank you. Thank you to Victoria Coates for her contribution to this episode. You can find more by Victoria at heritage.org or by following her on X at Victoria Coates. We've also included a link to Virginia Allen's article in The Daily Signal detailing her interview with Jonathan and Ido Lulu Shamriz. If you have thoughts, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, send them our way at heritageexplains at heritage.org. From all of us here at the Heritage Foundation, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Ghani, Lauren Evans, and John Pop.